chapter 16 in particular, there's a story, you might be familiar with it, of a young girl who has a spirit of divination. This is not a spirit from God. This is a spirit from the pit of hell. And through this spirit, she's able to fortune tell, predict the future, those kind of things. And she is, she's a slave as well, so she has some masters, some men who own her. And the Bible says regarding her that uh, she brings them great wealth because of this ability she possesses. Paul and Silas show up. She begins following them around while they're preaching, while they're preaching the name of Jesus, preaching the gospel message. And she follows them around and says, these men are servants of the Most High God showing you the way of salvation. Day after day, she would follow them around and say that. Just keep repeating it. So Paul, after a, a few days, gets, gets irritated. And the Bible says he turns to and casts the, the spirit out of her. Now, as soon as the spirit's cast out of her, guess what? She can't fortune tell anymore. So guess what her owners do? They get very upset. They begin making accusations against Paul and against Silas. There's a crowd that gathers. The owners are present. The owners of the slave girl are present. They begin this parade of shame, and the crowd gathers around, and they join in. Does that sound familiar to you? People who just join in and gather around, they're not necessarily a part of the situation initially, but now they insert themselves, and they seem to trumpet what these evildoers are saying and doing. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 16, verse 22. The barrage of insults and insinuations prompting the city officials to strip them naked in the public square so they could be beaten with rods. There's such a commotion that the city officials decide to take Paul and Silas and strip them and beat them. And what have they done except deliver a woman from the demon that is living on the inside of her? The Bible goes on to say they were flogged mercilessly and then they were thrown into a prison cell. The jailer was ordered to keep them under the strictest supervision. The jailer, the jailer complied, first restraining them in ankle chains, then locking them in the most secure cell in the center of the jail. Picture this. It's midnight. In the darkness of their cell, Paul and Silas, after surviving the severe beating, aren't moaning and groaning. They're praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners in adjoining cells are wide awake, listening to them pray and sing. Suddenly, say suddenly, suddenly the ground begins to shake and the prison foundations begin to crack. You can hear the sounds of jangling chains and the squeak of cell doors opening. Every prisoner realizes that his chains have come unfastened. The jailer wakes up and runs into the jail. His heart sinks as he sees the doors of all flung open. He's sure the prisoners have escaped and he knows that this will mean death for him. So he pulls out his sword, intending to follow his own sword. At that moment, Paul sees what is happening and shouts at the top of his lungs, Wait, man, don't harm yourself. We're all here. None of us has escaped. And the jailer and his assistants get some torches and rushes to the cell of Paul and Silas. He falls on his knees before them, trembling. And then he brings them outside. I want to focus on Paul and Silas in this situation. Not what led up to this jailing, this flogging, this beating, said they were beaten with rods, and then they were flogged. That's two different beatings. And I don't believe that this was kind of like, you know, just tapping somebody with a stick. 
beating with rods means these people are like smacking those, those, those sticks on, on their bodies and then flogging them, flogging as in a whip. And from this, the story continues, and I don't want to read all of it, but the story continues. The jailer wants to know, what, can I, what do I have to do to be saved? Paul begins to preach Jesus to him. Uh, he and his household, the Bible says, come to Christ. The jailer takes them home, tends to their wounds, feeds them, and then the next day, they're released. So a lot of stuff happening in this story, but let's focus on a few things here. They're released, and if you skip all the way down to verse number 40, it says, they stopped at Lydia's house to gather with the brothers and sisters there, meaning other believers, and give them parting words of encouragement. Give them parting words of encouragement. And so... Come on, let's go back through this really quickly to get you to understand this, this, this idea of suddenly. Uh, Paul and Silas are uh, insulted, which is difficult to bear in any circumstance. They're stripped. That's, 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 a, that's a severe humiliation right there. I've never had that happen, but I could imagine that it would be most embarrassing and humiliating to have that happen. Not only are they stripped, but then they're beaten, they're flogged, they're chained, and they're imprisoned. This is a bad day. This is a really bad day. They could have taken the opportunity, as many of us have, to send out invitations for this grand pity party. Poor me. Let me tell you my story. And so we walk around, look for somebody we, that, who will listen to our story. And then we gather them around. Now, I'm not talking about genuine empathy, genuine sympathy. I'm talking about people who are actually, you know, my life. Now, now, I don't know if you've ever grumbled and complained in your life. I'm sure you've had opportunity. But that's where we are in this story. These men have had a bad, bad day. When we begin to focus on our trouble, it blocks out the glorious light that God wants to provide to illuminate our situation and bring us back in a place of balance. We hang our heads, poor me. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. Right, so we get to ourselves in that place, and what do we start meditating on? Right, a seed of, of despair gets planted. We begin to meditate on it. And then that seed gives birth and begins to flourish. If we don't snuff it out, it begins to take root in us. And then we become uh, despondent, discouraged. In Mark chapter 4, you remember the story? Uh, Jesus and the disciples are crossing over the lake. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. A storm arises. Wind, waves, the waves are coming over the bow of the boat. The boat is beginning, beginning to get flooded. And unless something changes, looks like the boat's going to sink. These men are terrified. Meanwhile, Jesus is on a comfortable pillow in the back, just sleeping. 
And they go back there, and I'm sure it wasn't tapping him. Excuse me. They're in fear for their lives, and I'm sure if anybody's ever, you've ever tried to get somebody awake, or you've been awakened that way, Jesus, right? They're, they're yanking on pulling them. What, what's the matter, boys? And what's, what do they say to him? Don't you care that we're about to die? Don't you care we're going to drown? Somewhere along the way, they took their eyes off of him and his delivering power, and they got it on the situation. Man, in life, how many times we have that opportunity to take our eyes off of Jesus and begin to focus on the situation. The devil loves to continue to try to remind you of the situation so you begin to drop your eyes. The Bible says, look up and lift up your head for your redemption draws nigh. And I had a coach in high school in football, and he would, he would say, if your eyes are down, you go down. If your eyes are down, you go down. That's true in several sports. That's true in wrestling. You can drop your head. You're just easier to, easier to control if you drop your head in wrestling. You drop your eyes in football. You become easier to control. You drop your head in lots of things. You no longer have any vision for what's, up, what's in front of you. So the devil would love for you to drop your head, focus on the immediate, the situation at hand, the situation that you can't control anyway, the situation over which you have no ability to pull yourself out of. So these men are in that situation too. And so they said, Jesus, don't you care? <laughs> and so he gets up and he speaks to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. And the Bible says immediately, or we could say suddenly, what happened? The wind calmed, and the waves, the, way, the, 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 the water went flat. You ever been out in the ocean when it's flat? On, on flat water, it's a whole lot different than waves. And depending on how big the waves are, waves can be terrifying, depending on how big they are and how big or small your boat is. Waves can be terrifying. He calms it all down. Gentlemen, gentlemen. <laughs> and so now he was with them uh, physically, and they panicked. And he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. To us, he's with us too. He's with us too. So get our eyes off the wind, get our eyes off the waves, get our eyes on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So let's get back to Paul and Silas. It's midnight. They're locked in a cell. They've been severely beaten. They likely have open wounds on their bodies. They're bound in chains, and their jail cell is pitch black. Their jail cell is pitch black. Again, this is a, this is a bad day. I'm fairly certain that these people doing the beating weren't like, okay, now let's just make sure we just get this part of your body. They're just swinging legs, arms, back, front, head, grabbing the whip, letting those, letting those things just fly wherever they hit. Doesn't matter to me. It's my job to torture. That's what I do. I don't really care how, what, what you look like at the end. So, man, it's rough. 
It's nighttime. It's the middle of the night. And yet, what happens? Something incredibly unbelievable happens in this moment. And the Bible says that Paul and Silas are not moaning and groaning, which most of us say they have every right to. Every right. Their bodies are uh, in pain. They're in a situation that seems hopeless. After a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. I want to be like Paul and Silas. But to be like Paul and Silas, I have to regularly fill myself up, regularly come to God in the good times and the bad times, regularly become familiar with his nature, his character, his goodness, his mercy, his grace that he wants to lavish upon me. I've had to get my thinking to actually make these kind of statements. He wants to lavish it upon me, and he wants to lavish it upon you too. I believe it now, and I hope that you either believe it now or are moving in that direction to fully accept this is what God has made available to me. So these men begin to sing. They're praying, and they're singing hymns to God. This is incredible. Come on. This is incredible. Sometimes uh, people have come alongside me and say, David, you need to, you know, you need to pick up your head, and you need to, let, let's move on. Let's begin singing. Let's, and, of course, me being the super spiritual one, leave me alone. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure some of you are like, okay, let's sing. No, you're probably like me in those moments when it, it just feels like the bottom fell out. You know that moving in that realm of praise and worship is the direction you should move. I know that. But my flesh says, I deserve to feel this way. And it's not that we can't have sorrow. It's not that we can't feel anger. It's, it's not, the Bible says be angry and sin not. So it's not a sin to be angry unless you cross a particular boundary. It's not wrong to be sorrowful. But these men had a, had a really difficult day, and they, because they had cultivated a relationship with God in this dark moment, they begin singing hymns to God. They begin praying and crying out to God. They didn't cower in the darkness. What they did is they shifted their attention from their circumstance to the one who could deliver them from their circumstance. Come on, I'll say that again. They took their eyes off of their situation and looked to the one who could take them out of the situation or help them through the situation. Again, I've had moments in life where I'm just staring so heavily at the situation, I'm consumed with it. And in those moments where I'm so consumed with the situation, I can tell you assuredly God's not in that realm. It's kind of like what you call peripheral vision. I'm so focused here that God's all here, but I don't see him because I'm so focused. I believe they call that tunnel vision. You're so focused on one thing, you don't notice the other things around. 
Maybe you've experienced this. You've actually taken a picture, because lots of people take pictures these days, and you didn't notice the person in the back was photobombing you until after you looked at the picture later on. Because you were focused on the image when you clicked the shutter. You're focused on the person, the child, the dog, the food, whatever it was. That's what you're focused on. You didn't notice anything else until you looked at the picture. And God wants us to be so focused on him that we don't notice the other stuff, that it, that it goes out to the periphery. The trouble, the difficulty. That's why we enter into, into praise and worship. That's why sometimes we tell you, and I told you tonight, come on, you, good day, bad day, you need to try to put some of this stuff over here and get your attention here. Look up, get your attention on the things of God, get your attention on the throne of God, get your attention on the person of God. See G, Jesus right there at his right hand? Oh, yep, there he is. Ever making intercession for you and me? And so they shifted their attention. Paul and Silas shifted their attention to the one who could deliver them. It's dark in their cell, but I believe that in the process of doing this, they were hastening the light of God's glory into their, in, in his presence into their cell. So let's see what happens next. Verse 26 says, suddenly, say suddenly. Come on, we read it already, but it bears repeating. The ground begins to shake. The prison foundations begin to crack. You can hear the sound of jangling chains and the squeak of cell doors opening. Every prisoner realizes that his chains have, have come unfastened. There are two men whose presence, whose reverence for God, whose recognition of the one who could deliver them is so profound that they're not weeping and crying, moaning and groaning, but they're praying and praising and worshiping and singing to God that in this moment, everyone in the jail is set free. God wants to have suddenlies in your life again and again and again, and suddenly the wind and the waves calm down. And suddenly... Their situation just turned, and they were delivered and set free. They didn't run off, though, because God had another purpose for them. They were set free, actually, uh, by the city officials the next day, and then down to verse 40. Come on. Down to verse 40. They stopped at Lydia's home. Okay, wait, 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 wait. This is the day after. The day after what? The day after being beaten with rods, flogged with the whip, thrown in prison, chained to a wall, and put in the darkest cell. The next morning, they go to this home of a believer where other believers are gathered, and it says, before they leave town, they take time encouraging the others who are there. Take time encouraging others. Oh, to be like Paul and Silas. I don't beat myself up when I don't reach certain standards, and yet I look and I say, oh, I want to be like that. I want to be so full of God's goodness, so full of God's presence, that when the waves of life, when the tides turn against me, when the storm clouds uh, rage, when situations are profound and so profoundly overwhelming, that I can begin praying, praising, and worshiping God. 
And I would love to say I do that 100% of the time. I don't, I, but I do it frequently, much more than I used to. I don't say, oh, thank you for this horrible situation. But I thank God that he's with me. I thank God that he, uh, speaking of Jesus, he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He sticks closer than a brother. I thank God for his delivering power and that he's at work in that moment. Taking care of details that I don't always see. Giving me the strength and the wisdom to advance rather than to fall back. God is in it. God is working through us. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our shelter and our strength. When trouble seems near, God is nearer, and he's ready to help. He's nearer, and he's ready to help. Come what may. I'm still chasing after you. I'm still pursuing you. I'm still seeking your face, and I'm still stepping into the promises you've made. I believe every word you've spoken, everything you've declared to me personally, and everything you declared generally to me through your word. I believe it, I receive it, I accept it, and I claim it.